If you will, turn with me to the book of Jude, if you haven't already. It's the second to last book in your Bible, so if you want, just flip to the end, find Revelation, go one book to the left, and you'll find the book of Jude. Uh, As some of you know, uh, years ago, my wife and I did some campus ministry, and as we were doing it, we were house parents of a fraternity. That's, that's a real thing. And so we lived in a fraternity. We ate with the men of the fraternity. We ministered among the men of that fraternity. And if you have various stereotypes of frats, uh, many of them are correct. And so we lived with uh, somewhere north of 100. Um, and they very much, most of them, most of them were not Christians, most of them had very little interest in the Bible. And in all of them, if you talked with them, knew one Bible verse. I wonder if you could guess it. Judge not, lest ye be judged. I'm being, I, don't, I don't even know why they memorize in the King James, but it's always in the King James. But it was sort of their John 3.16. It, it was sort of like a, a, a talisman saying, uh, Christian, Save your judgment for yourself. We live in a time where no one wants to be judgy. Being sort of judgy is the, maybe the unpardonable sin. It's sort of culturally revulsive. And yet there's a sense in which, and this is the paradox about it, though we, we don't want to be judgy, we sort of hate it when people are judgmental. We actually, in, in one way, want an ultimate judge. That's where the paradox exists. Recently, my wife and, uh, and I, actually our whole family, we were listening to an Adventures in Odyssey, which is a, a program of focus on the family. And, and this particular one was about the Underground Railroad. And it was captivating. It really was captivating. And yet by the end, by, by the end of this maybe half hour, 45 minute episode, justice was not doled out. Evil was not checked. And it was unsettling for me. It was unsettling that that, that those who were practicing injustice, those who practice evil, got away with it. So on the one hand, we sort of hate people who are judgmental. And on the other hand, we hate it when the unrighteous go unpunished. We want them judged. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Jude. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, and he writes this letter to various Christians. And he encourages them, as you heard in Phil's prayer, he, he encourages them to contend for the faith. The faith once given down to the saints. And he, and he says back in verse 1 that they are to contend for the faith by realizing that they are, in fact, kept for Jesus Christ. But not only are we to contend for the faith by realizing that we're kept for Jesus Christ, we're also to contend for the faith, and this is what we're going to learn in verses 5 through 10, that one way we contend for the faith is by realizing that some are kept for judgment. This morning, we're going to talk about judgment. But, but not uh, just, just judgment generally, 
but judgment particularly as it relates to these people in this church. And if you think about it and you're wondering, okay, well, what are the sorts of sins, what are the sorts of behavior in which God judges? Well, one way to ask that question is to say, what's God judged in the past that could help us understand how God will judge in the future? So, so one way to answer sort of these rhetorical questions like, who will God judge? What will God judge? Why will God judge? Is to ask, well, how has God judged in the past? And how can we use and understand descriptively how God has judged in the past in order to understand how God will judge in the future? Now, the context of Jude's day, and we see this in verse 4, that, that there are these teachers these people who crept into the church, Navy SEAL style, right? Covertly. And it says that they're going to be judged back there in verse 4. They were from long ago kept for condemnation. They were kept for judgment. And so what we have in verses 5 through 10 is just further explanation of verse 4. So verse 4 kind of gives us a, 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 a taste of the description of these people, what they believed, how they acted. And now what we have in verses 5 through 10 is exactly why God will judge them. Now, I, I sort of assume that in your mind you have your sort of top 10 lists of sins in which God would judge. Maybe you have them sort of even listed, like these are the top five. The, the, the really big ones. And so in verse 8, we have three listed here. Three sins that God's going to judge these people. Now, I'm going to point them out in a second, but I just wonder, before I point them out, I wonder if these are on your list. Go down to verse 8. Verse 8 says, Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, first, defile the flesh, which is the sin of sexual immorality, the sin of sensuality. They defile the flesh first. Second, they reject authority. That's the sin of rebellion. Third, they blaspheme the glorious ones. You can think of this as the the, the sin of slander, the sin of blasphemy, the, the sin of grumbling, the sin of discontentment. Discontentment. Now, Jude's going to make his case. He's going to make his case using three historic examples from the Old Testament and then one contemporary illustration that they knew of. You could think of the first as three little sermonettes and then one illustration to make the same point. And and it's actually really cool, and I'm just going to point it out. Uh, The the list there in verse 8, those three sins, it's uh, in verses 5 through 7, in reverse order, you have Old Testament texts that illuminate and describe those three sins. They're just in reverse order. So Jude, in verses 5 through 7, explains three historic events. We're going to look at them slowly and shows that God judged in the past as a way of reminding how God is going to judge in the future. And then in verse 9, he uses a contemporary illustration. Now, if you look at uh, verse 9, right, you've got this archangel contending with the devil over the body of Moses, and you might go, I don't remember reading any of that in my Old Testament. 
It's because you can't find it in your Old Testament. It's not in your Bibles. But this was a a known document story that they would have all known. And so what the author is doing is he's, he's using that kind of common, known story document in order to illustrate a point. It, it would be like this. If, if I wanted to talk about the importance of friendship for the Christian life, I could then maybe use Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and talk about the friendship between Sam and Frodo and say something like, you, you, see, you see, if you want to finish well, you need friendships. Now, now, you know that Frodo and Sam are not real, but they can make a real point. That's what's going on here. You know, Jude's quoting Shakespeare here, as it were. And he's making a similar point that that that, that sort of judgment in the past serves as not just a warning, but a reminder of judgment to come in the future. So that's the big idea, and we're going to, and it's already up. And it's that judgment in the past is a reminder that judgment will come in the future. So let's slowly go through this. Go back to verse 5. Let me read it. Verse 5. Now, I I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, the stress here is on the sin of unbelief, and that judgment that Jesus is going to levy on that unbelief. So to make his point, he he goes back to the Old Testament and makes an allusion to God's people in the wilderness. It's the story of Numbers 14. Don't don't go there, but if you want, you can later read of the entire chapter, but I'm just going to read a few verses of it. But in Numbers 14, which is what Jude is alluding to, it starts out this way. Verse 1. God's people have been brought out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Then at night, all the members of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword. Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it have been better to go back to Egypt? Now, do you remember how God responds to this? This this grumbling? Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt, blasphemy, slander? How long will they refuse to believe in me? in spite of all the things I have performed among them. That, that's how God responds to their grumbling. And I think it's interesting that, that we have Israel grumbling, discontent, murmuring, and it's connected to unbelief. But both in Jude and there in Numbers 14. You think it's just, oh, they're just grumbling, they're complaining about their lot, but no, no, no. It's that they're complaining their discontentment is actually unbelief. Our author connects them, both in Numbers and in Jude. God's people were not just complaining. God's people were not just kind of murmuring. They were, in effect, not believing God. 
Now, blasphemy, back in Jude, that, that word in some of your translations say slander. Blasphemy is just simply speaking abuse or wrongs against the things of God. That's what slander is. It's speaking wrongs or abuse against the things of God. And if you remember in the Gospels, you've got this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Remember that? Well, if you just read the, the story, it's, it's basically religious leaders said that Jesus performed miracles by demonic power. So it's attributing demonic activity to the Messiah, which we would say would be abusive, wrong, and therefore blasphemous. That's what grumbling does. Grumbling is the divine attack we levy on God and his purposes. And we see that perfectly illustrated in Numbers 14. Just, just think about what, just as I read that text, the sort of things that they were thinking and saying. They were basically saying, okay, we're out in this wilderness. It's hard. What sort of God would lead us out here? This can't be a good God. God doesn't care about my children or my family. God couldn't have good purposes while we're in the wilderness. God's not with us. He doesn't feel like he's present with us. God must be wrong to have given us Moses and Aaron. Those aren't good gifts. They're terrible leaders. They need to read some leadership books. They led us to our destruction. You go on and on. You see how grumbling can easily turn not just for kind of levying accusation against people or events, but ultimately, when you think about it, they just slowly ratchet up to levying, you know, frustrations against God himself and God's purposes. And that's what we see in in verse 8 of Jude. These teachers are called out as slandering. Now, now, now notice who they're slandering in verse 8. It's interesting. It, It says they're slandering glorious ones. Now, glorious one is just sort of a stand-in for angels. So, so these people were slandering, speaking abuse, speaking wrongs against angels, which you might think, that's weird. It's sort of weird. But there's an answer, a simple answer. In, in Jude's day, uh, they had a sort of a high uh, view of angels. And, and they, they believed, and, and you can, they had good reason to believe it in, in the Old Testament, but they believed that as it relates to the Old Testament and the laws of the Old Testament, that those were mediated and guarded by angels. And so in the early church, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament was highly related to and connected to the activity of angels. And so evidently, these teachers, these people were bad-mouthing angels, but but doing so in order to bad-mouth the Old Testament, bad, uh, kind of bad-mouth rules that they didn't want to follow, right? We saw that back in four, two weeks ago, right? They they were perverting the grace of God and turning it into a, a way in which they could just decide to do whatever they wanted to do to fit their fancy. And then to make this case even more clear, Go down to that really odd illustration that I mentioned earlier about uh, the archangel Michael and Satan contending, fighting over the body of Moses. 
So who, who, who gets Moses' body when he died? Satan? Or Michael the angel? Moses was a murderer. Who did he belong to? Satan? That, that's the tension, isn't it? And Michael says, basically, he dared not make a slander against the devil. And if you think about it, among all the people, the, the personal beings in the world, who could we slander? The devil? Satan? God's enemy? And yet even here, Michael says, I'm not going to slander Satan. I'm not going to fight over. And then he says, it's because God will do it. The Lord will rebuke you, verse 9. And when you think about it, this really is the gospel, isn't it? Satan, in one sense, did have claim over Moses. He was a sinner, and yet God, and only God, can pronounce vindication, redemption, salvation for Moses. And he can only do it through Jesus' son, who died on a cross for sinners, like Moses, like all of us. Now, when you put all this together, it's pretty clear, and it's simply this. That God judges Israel in the Old Testament for their grumbling, their slander, their blasphemy, their contempt. God will judge. God judged, and now, in like fashion, God will someday judge these people for their blasphemy, for their slander, for their discontentment. Now, I don't think we often think about those sorts of sins in a serious way, do we? And if you want to know how serious God takes those sins, just think about how God judged Israel back in Numbers 14, back in the Old Testament, as they grumbled in the wilderness. God says, none of you, except for two, Caleb and Joshua, but none of the rest of you will make it to the promised land. You're excluded that's how serious God takes slander, blasphemy, discontentment. One of the great Puritans, Jeremiah Burroughs, wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you haven't read it, put it on your top list. It'll, it'll very much convict you, but it, that book changed my life. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he writes these words. Oh, that we could but convince men and women that a murmuring spirit, a discontented spirit, is a greater evil than any affliction, whatever the affliction may be. Now, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, this, this sort of text, as I've been thinking about it, it, it sort of haunted me all week. Because we live in a season where there's a lot to grumble about. To mask or not to mask. Restrictions and restrictions that have hurt real people. Restrictions that have hurt businesses. A favorite restaurant of mine down in Oregon is out of business, I assume, never to come back. I, I took a 
personal stock a few weeks ago of all the things I've lost because of COVID and these restrictions, right? I, I didn't get to go to Croatia. Some of you also felt that pain. Right, I haven't been able to see various family members. The YMCA, I loved going to the YMCA and getting on that rowing machine. Singing, in-person schooling, there's just so many more. Seeing the heartbreak on my children as various things and friends they, they can't see as much. All of those things are temptations, events, where I can easily begin to start grumbling. To have those afflictions, and some of you have more of them, even small as they might be, you can realize how quickly those can turn into unbelief. Where I myself might start catching myself saying, well, God, you are powerful enough to, to, to eradicate this. Why don't you do it by now? Or things like, as some of you know, last summer I lost my grandfather. And so the temptation would be, well, why did he have to die in a season where we can't even properly give him a funeral? We could go on and on. All of us could have those sorts of experiences, those afflictions, those hardships that easily can turn into not just grumbling horizontally, but then grumbling vertically. You realize how easily grumbling can turn into unbelief, blasphemy against God. It's sometimes easy to just read the Old Testament. You read the grumbling of Israel and go, my gosh, they just just grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. I wouldn't have done that. No, the the same initial cause in Israel and us, it still exists. And I'm going to put before you what I think happens. I think ultimately grumbling comes because of entitlement. We feel entitled to things. Like entitled to going to the grocery store and there's toilet paper. But God didn't promise a world in this broken world, a world in which every time you go to Safeway, there's toilet paper. That's not the world we live in. Entitlements come, and entitlements are basically a a kind of a subtle backdoor form of pride. I deserve better than this. I am better than this. And so when entitlement sort of grips the heart, because just think about Israel. Think about all of the miracles. Think about all the things they saw, all the signs they saw God do, and yet they said, well, we're your people. We're We don't deserve this wilderness. I'm tired of this thing in the sky, this manna. Where's the pizza? Where's the diversity of food? We're better than this. We're your people. And so when entitlement gripped their heart, they began to grumble, but little did they know, their grumbling turned into blasphemy against God himself. So let me just ask you, just this week, It'd be a good exercise to think through what are those things in which you naturally feel entitled to or things in which where your mind just kind of naturally daydreams into murmuring, grumbling, feeling of discontentment. Well, we learn here that in the past God judged it 
and and Jude were reminded that God will judge it in the future. That's the first historic example. Now now let's look at the second. Not not only does Jesus judge slander, he's also going to judge rebellion. Verse 6, let me read it. And the angel... And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that of the great day. So here, now, now the, the story is not, um, and the kind of the, the locus and the focus is not on Israel. It's on heaven. It's on angels. Particularly fallen angels. Those angels who rebelled against God. And it says that not only did they rebel against God, but in response, they are kept for judgment. God's response to angelic rebellion is judgment. Now, you might be sitting there going, so why did the angels, God created angels, why did some of them rebel? That's an interesting question, a fascinating question. The Bible doesn't really answer that question. But it does answer some other questions. We learn here that in some sense, we know that these fallen angels are chained, so, so they're restricted in what they can do. And that their fate is sealed. These fallen angels have no hope of redemption. Judgment will fall on all fallen angels. Angels who rejected God's authority, who rebelled. That is what rebellion is. Rebellion is a rejection of God's kingly authority. That is a sort of simple, basic definition. Rebellion is an attack on God's authority. And we see it historically in these fallen angels. And Jude says, that's the sort of thing that is happening with these people. They too are rejecting God's authority. In many ways... This should make sense to us. Rebellion, as we see in Jude, it it works out in all places and all times as a rejection of God's authority. I think this sort of phrase captures it perfect, that truth is in the eye of the beholder. This may have started with the angels, but it also works its way in Adam and Eve. Isn't that what we see there in in the garden? They thought they knew best. And so they rejected God's authority, and they did that which was right in their own eyes. And then it works its way all throughout the ages and found its way in Jude's day, and I dare say in our day as well. Verse 8 says these teachers, they relied on their dreams. Verse 8. And like my inners, these people also relying on their dreams. That was their locus that was their, the, the, the force of their authority, their dreams, their intuitions, their gut feelings. Don't we say things like that too? Why could something be wrong if it feels so right? I think in, in some ways one of the most prophetic things that we can do as a church, any church that would really speak loudly to culture is that church filled with men and women who who say that just because I feel something doesn't mean that that is the authority and I must submit to that feeling. Now that works for many things. 
But, but one this, this week that I thought of is, and, and some of you ha- heard this news, but there's a particular actress who this past week announced that she is now a he. Basically, they're saying that, that, that the feelings that they had inside must now be expressed outwardly. Why could something wrong feel so right? That's the argument. Well, Christianity has a different way of thinking about this. Our feelings, our gut feelings, our intuitions. I mean, just ask my wife. They're sometimes right. They're often wrong. Those are not our ultimate authority. We actually submit to another authority, a higher authority, that resides not inside of us, but outside of us. We submit our feelings, our dreams, our intuitions, our even our consciences, we submit it ultimately to God himself and God's word. Now that's hard, isn't it? I think it's quite hard. But that's where maturity comes from. That's where growth comes from. Actually, the Bible actually connects blessing with submission. Many, many years ago, Will Smith, the, the musician, wrote a song, Parents Just Don't Understand. Now he's right. The older my kids go, the more I realize I don't understand. And that even when I don't understand, there is blessing to be had as children say, yeah, but my dad loves me. My mom loves me. And there's blessing in a well-ordered relationship. Rebellion is simply just not submitting to the true godly authority that we have in God's word. And Jude says it's going to be judged. It was judged in the past by God as it relates to angels. It's going to be judged in the future as it relates to these teachers. Now, thirdly, let's go to this third historic example, which kind of illuminates the the sin of sensuality, sexual immorality. Jude turns perhaps to the most famous story of judgment in the Old Testament, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read of that in Genesis 19. I'm not going to read it. Uh, and in many ways, Jude pretty much sums it up nicely. Uh, I'll, I'll read it. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, in that verse, we see in verse 7, two words listed. We see sexual immorality, unnatural desires. Think of those as like the A to Z of sexual sin, right? It's like getting the whole gamut. So this isn't just talking about the sort of sins that were um, in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? This is not focusing on one sin. You know, Jude wants to explain that to all sexual sin. And says that just like the sexual sin that was judged back in Sodom and Gomorrah, So these teachers are going to be judged. Now, we saw this back in verse 4, right? They used grace as a means, as a sort of license to say, ah, God will forgive you in the end, so just do whatever you want to do. Then verse 10 says that, and describes their sin this way. It says that they are, verse 10, destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Right? It's as if these 
people are slaves to their instinct. They're, they're no better than animals. Whatever their biological urges, um, they just must do them. They were pursued. They, 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 you could think of it this way, that, that pleasure ruled them. Sensuality ruled them. And it ruled them so much that they even used grace in order to legitimize their sexual sin. Now, we sort of have to be careful here by way of application. Because pleasure is a good thing. Now, there are some pleasures that God forbids. And in those cases, we are to avoid them. But God created a world of pleasure. He created a world of image bearers who can experience pleasure. And if you think of even the Garden of Eden, think of all of the pleasures. God says, delight, look at all this good stuff. J- just, don't, just don't eat of that tree. But all this rest, I mean, it's, it's, it's tilted in pleasure's favor, right? It's tilted in do all this fun stuff. Enjoy, just don't partake of that particular tree. God created a world of pleasure. Pleasures like sex and food and drink and art and nature. And, and you could just go on. They're gifts. But it's so easy to turn a gift into an ultimate thing. It's so easy to take a pleasure and then that pleasure to be turned into an ultimate thing. It's so easy to take a pleasure that once was just something you enjoyed, but then soon enough you realize that you were a slave to that pleasure, like we see in Jude. So how do we experience pleasure without worshiping pleasure? I think there's many ways we can think about this. I'm just going to give you one. I think we need to connect worship with pleasure. I've been running for two weeks. Thank you. And um, I've been told for you runners out there that there's a thing called a, uh, like a runner's high. I think it's a lie. I've never experienced it. I think it's just a ploy that like runners like Nike has used in order to get people to run and buy their products. But whatever. For a moment, let's just pretend that there is a thing called a runner's high and you can kind of get euphoric as you go on long runs. Okay? Now, there is a way to say, oh, I'm going to run to just experience that pleasure. So I'm just going to run chasing that high. But there's another way to say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run because God gave me legs and muscles, and nature, and lungs, and the ability to do that. So I'm just going to run and experience pleasure. And as I run and experience that pleasure, I'm going to worship God. Think of Eric Liddell. Many of you know this uh, story. Um, Or uh, think of the movie, actually, in particular. Eric Liddell is a real person, but they made a movie called Chariots of Fire about him. And he was an Olympic runner. But he was first and foremost, not a runner, he was first and foremost a Christian. And this is what he said about running. At one point in the movie he said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Isn't that good? God made me fast, but when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Little turned a gift, a pleasurable gift, into an opportunity to worship God. I dare say you can do that with any, any sanctioned pleasure. 
you can turn it into an opportunity to worship God. Actually, I'm going to go a step further and say, if you don't do that, if you don't take a pleasure and give thanks to God for that pleasure, to, to use it as a means to glorify God, to worship God, if you don't do that with a particular pleasure, you're eventually going to become a slave to that pleasure. That, that's how the Bible talks about it. The, the, the pleasure of marital, marital sex. It's within the context of worship. And if you don't see how sex is an act of worship, you're going to misunderstand the nature and purpose of that pleasure. Or food. Food is pleasurable. We have taste buds. Well, food and eating should be an opportunity of giving thanks to God. There's, I think, a reason why we sit down and the history of Christians and the church have sat down right before they eat. What do they do? They give thanks to God, saying, this is an opportunity to worship God, to give thanks to him, to glorify him for what we are about to pleasurably enjoy. We need to worship and connect our worship with pleasure because I don't really think pleasure is the problem. Worship's our problem. We worship pleasure. We, we think the pleasure is the end, but no, pleasure is just a means to an end of giving thanks to God for that very pleasure. Well, back to Jude. In Jude, we learn that God's going to judge. That God has judged in the past when we think of fallen angels, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, when we think of Israel in the wilderness, and when we think of that contemporary illustration of Moses and Satan fighting over, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Michael and Satan fighting over Moses' body. God judged in the past. And those serve as reminders that God will judge in the future. And if I'm honest, that's a lot of bad news. Maybe you're a little unnerved when you think about those sins and their application to your own life. Those, those three categories of sin, I dare say that all of us in various seasons and in different ways struggle with those sins. And so in one sense, we're supposed to be provoked. We're supposed to be a bit unnerved. And yet I don't think that's the ultimate emotion. I think this is supposed to be encouraging for us. Remember, th this is all about contending for the faith. This is an encouragement to contend for the faith, to persevere. And so I think some of us are supposed to consider the weight of our sin, and yet in the midst of considering the weight of our sin, there is hope and encouragement, and it's in verse 5. Look at it. The good news that Jude wants to remind us of is that even so, God, Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. This is why that this section is so encouraging to Christians and to all of us. Because though some are kept for judgment, others are saved by Jesus. As verse 1 says, they are kept for Jesus. Though you may struggle with grumbling, slandering God, know this, Jesus never grumbled. In particular, he didn't grumble as he went to the cross. Hebrews tells us he went to the cross for the joy set before him. Though we all struggle with authority, we all are skeptical about authority. Just take any sort of debate that's going on. I think in some ways, 
It's a debate about authority and a suspicion of authority. We struggle with authority. We struggle with rebellion. And yet Jesus submitted to his father perfectly. He is the true faithful Israel who obey God to the end. And though you may struggle with sensuality, how we view pleasure, Jesus saw pleasure as a means to glorify God. An ultimate expression of his pleasure. Just think about it. Where did Jesus experience the highest, most climactic pleasure? On the cross. Because in doing so, he saved the people for himself. Our hope is not that, that our, our hope is no different than Israel and in Jude's day. Our hope is not that we stop grumbling. Our hope is not that we stop fighting authority. Our hope is not that we perfectly live chaste lives. Our hope is that Jesus has already done that for us and that by doing that for us, we can now be kept for Jesus Christ because he saved a people out of, Is- out of Egypt and he saved us, not from the bondage of Egypt. He did something far greater when he came on Christmas. He saved a people from the bondage of their sin. Dying on Friday, rising on Easter. That's our hope. That's why this is so encouraging. Now, we, we might have a love-hate relationship with judgment. But judgment, is an ultimate, judgment ultimately is a good thing. It's, it's a God thing. So as you contend for the faith, know that you are contending for a faith Because Jesus is keeping you. Jesus is keeping you from that ultimate judgment. And he did so through his life, death, and resurrection. That's our hope. That's our song. Even in times where it's so easy to grumble. Let's pray. God, um, I'm so grateful that you interact with us not based on our merit, but based on Jesus' merit. And so this morning as we gather, as we worship, as we think about you, Lord, we come to you in forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, knowing that you are a God who welcomes us home and forgives us of our many sins. Give us joy in this season. Give us laughter. Help us to glorify you whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, may we glorify you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.